And now, live from beautiful Myrtleby, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Oh, thank you. Oh, oh, thank you. It's me. Oh, it's me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please. Oh, I'm actually going to let you clap. Clap for the pre-recorded miracle. How would we know that you, in fact, wanted this pre-recorded miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us on this Wednesday. It's actually not being recorded on Wednesday, but you're watching it on Wednesday night. And thank you so much for tuning into this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. What makes it so amazing? Well, first of all, you're here. Second of all, our incredible guest is going to be here. We're going to be introducing him soon. I actually interviewed him back on Monday. But third of all, this is incredible because the entire thing is pre-recorded and I am there hovering over you, watching you, watching me, watching you, watching me right now. So we're going to have a lot of fun. We're pre-recording this because I had to fly to Columbus uh, to be able to then go to Russell to go to the big event in Russell, Kentucky, where we're fighting for the Russell Convalescent Home. More on that later. This is a Muddy Media, Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, everything. All social media platforms, all podcasting platforms. And also, I got to do this quickly. Also, be sure to subscribe to Waters Media. Uh, by going to anchor.fm slash moneywaters slash subscribe, you will get access to exclusive content. You will be able to join the monthly muddied Zoom with uh, me and Matt Wright and all the other incredible people with Muddy Waters Media. And also, you'll be getting a discount at the Muddy Waters Media store. I forget the amount, but you'll be getting a discount. It's more than worth the $10 a month to become a member. So go to anchor.fm slash muddy water slash subscribe i believe subscribe subscribe so go there thank you so much and be sure to like this uh video or audio or whatever it is be sure to share it like it comment any of the things you can do to boost the algorithm algorithm go ahead and do those things now if you are subscribing and following us on youtube be sure to hit the bell so that your phone explodes with notifications every single time we go live and be sure to share this right now because the last thing I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a libertarian podcast on a weekday night for about an hour. I'd hate for that to happen. And I think you would too. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the second largest caucus and the fastest growing caucus in the Libertarian Party. And no, I'm not joking. If you want to become a member, go to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. And if you want to become an official voting member of the caucus, go to muddiedwatersmedia.com slash store and buy some sweet, sweet Waffle House Caucus merchandise. We have shirts there. We have buttons there. Go get it right now. The Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis. If you'd like to buy viable, ethical, and effective CBD and Delta 8 products made in Cumberland County, Tennessee. Go to CumberlandCannabisCo.com and get yours today. Joe Soloski is running for governor. I was just hanging out with him this weekend, and he says that he's not the key to Pennsylvania success, but freedom is. And if you'd like to help Joe become the first libertarian governor of Pennsylvania, go to Joe Soloski, that's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com. 
Mudwater, the most appropriately named sponsor we ever had or will have. If you'd like to buy something that's kind of like coffee, but doesn't have as much caffeine, but also doesn't taste as good, but it's better for you, then I have great news for you. You can get this. It's got masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and that's it. Nothing else. That's all of it right there. It's good stuff. I use it every day. If you go to muddiedwatersmedia.com slash mud, you can be happy like this. But you won't get the crash that you get from caffeine like this. So muddywatersmedia.com slash mud. Jack Casey, if you'd like to buy these books and let me know what they're about, that'd be fantastic because I'm never going to read them. Jack Casey's a great guy. I say that because he gives us money to try to get you to buy his books. Are they good? Are they bad? I don't know. Find out for yourself. Theroyalgreen.com. Adderpan, the most horrifying thing to ever happen on the internet. If you want to go to uh, Steam and buy this for the low, low price of $5 plus all of your ongoing mental health care, uh, you can play the most horrifying thing to ever be made in the digital realm. It's called Adderpan. If you want to see if you will survive the night playing this, sure, go ahead. $5 on Steam. Adderpan. Fierce Luxury by Ashley. That's not scary. Actually, it is scary. Scary good value. Scary luxurious fierce luxury by ashley high-end bags and accessories online consignment shop carrying some of the most exclusive brands like louis vuitton chanel gucci and hermes you can consign with her you can buy from her but you can also consign with her for a 30 percent fee which is 20 percent points less than the most consignment stores uh, you can find them online by going to fierceluxurybyashley.com or you can go to, to their exclusive Facebook group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Speaking of fierce and luxurious, Thomas Queter is running for state senate of the 52nd District of New York. Thomas Queter says, I run better than Albany, which is funny because he's in a wheelchair, huh? <laughs> he finds that funny. I feel uncomfortable every time I say it. If you'd like to help Tom, who is an incredible human being, I actually hung out with him this weekend and was reminded of just how great of a guy he is. If you'd like to help Tom become the first libertarian state senator of New, uh, New York, go to Tom452, that's T-O-M-F-O-R-5-2 dot com. If after listening to all of these, you want to sue me and you live in Florida, tough luck because I'm going to use personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. But if you'd like to sue someone else and you live in Florida, good news, because you can use personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law by going to chrisreynoldslaw.com and signing up for what I don't, I just contact him and say, hey, I'd like to sue someone. And he'll say, that's great. I'm going to get you so much money, you won't know what to do. You're going to get that kind of money where you walk around with big stacks of Benjis and you pull them out and go, oh, hey, mom, how, oh, 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 this isn't a phone. This is like 20 grand that I just got in my pocket because I got money like that. That's how you're going to be living when you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com. The intro and outro music to this in every single episode of my fellow americans comes from the amazing and talented mr joe davi that's j-o-d-a-v-i check him out on facebook go to his soundcloud go to joe davi music.bandcamp.com and buy his entire discography his new album just dropped you can buy the whole everything that's on there for like 20 something bucks it's amazing just go buy it right now i'd like to thank nestle pure life for this delicious water that i'm drinking on this episode i think i was actually drinking no i was drinking nestle pure life on the pre-recorded well this is pre-recorded but the other pre-recorded part Bulavanaka. shout out to Taron Turks and mom and as always I am now going to begin I'm going to hand it off 
I'm going to hand off this episode over to me wearing a different shirt where I interviewed Maurice Shema. My guest tonight is a staff writer at the Marshall Project, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization that works tirelessly to push for serious reform on the U.S. criminal justice system. He's also the author of the book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, which came out uh, back in 2019. Uh, he writes a lot about the death penalty. You can see his work in uh, themarshallproject.org. Uh, and occasionally he's also written uh, for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. We're going to be talking j about just that, the death penalty tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show Mr. Maurice Shema. Maurice, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, when, when we Before we started, uh, I've been hoping ever since uh, I heard that you were going to be my guest this week that your last name was pronounced Shema. Because that's, uh, you know, as a Jew, uh, you know, we do the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echadomain. Um, and I have, all, whenever I see a name like this, I'm like, please be Shema, please be, and it's usually yeah, like, yeah. It's Shema or something like that. And I'm like, oh, crap. All right, maybe next time. So I'm very excited. So you're already one of my favorite guests already just because of your last name. So thank you for coming. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I always, uh, it's an Arabic word. Crap. Father... Okay, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Sorry. We're going to, so I did not check this. Your name is not Dr. Wolf on layer. Oh no, but that is uh, hilarious. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. No, that's, well, so this is a perfect example of something we will. Good. Finish. No, that's no, great. And I guess if you just want to put like, I don't know, author, let the Lord sort them or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going to put. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I, leave, I honestly might leave this in just, I, I like for my, my, my followers to see. That yeah, that it's an absolute human process, right? Clown. Yeah, I'm probably. I'm actually. I'm going to leave that in. So let's just go ahead with it. So, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for having a Jewish-sounding last name. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, father is a Jew from from Syria, and uh, it's an Arabic word. But I grew up Jewish, and um, that was always the easy shorthand for explaining to people how to pronounce my last name. So that's um, cool. Glad that's it was cool. helpful here too. Yes, it was very helpful, uh, and and also the fact that you aren't Doctor. Uh, Wolf, who was a great guest last week, but you're going to be at <laughs> also least happy as to good be of Dr. a guest. Wolf, right. Yeah, you're not going to be Dr. Wolf. I mean, we could call you. I'll call. I told you I'll call my guests whatever they want to be called. You want to be Dr. Wolf, Dr. Shema, it's fine. Um, so, Maurice, uh, the death penalty. We have uh, a very hotly contested debate in this country that's been going on for, I don't know, well, I guess a century. Um, and it's also a hotly contested debate within the liberty movement within the libertarian party there are still a good number of, of libertarians who uh who believe that the death penalty is is a good thing even if it's being you know poorly used now or if it's being too broadly used that at least for the most extreme that's what i hear a lot for the most extreme cases uh it, it should still be used before we get into some of the specifics about the death penalty and how it ends up actually working what is your response to someone who says for example and and you know i guess we'll start with the hard questions first um I know you've heard it a million times on Twitter, which is a cesspool. Um, but what about, and they'll give an example of a mass murderer who, you know, a mass rapist and, you know, like the worst examples you can give or some like, you know, like what about Hitler? Or, you know, what about someone like that? What is your response when people say that? When someone say, what about this, you know, absolute monster of a person who killed, you know, hundreds or thousands of people? Sure. So, um, 
You know, the goal of the research for me and like my all of my work as a journalist is not really about sort of deciding uh, the ultimate moral good, right? The ultimate best answer to a question. It's about showing the system as it actually works in the real world. So uh, the death penalty, you know, as a punishment, one can debate like whether it's moral or just for a society to execute somebody. But that's a sort of separate question from can we as a society develop a system that actually uh, decides who is the worst of the worst and makes that decision in a consistent way that makes sense, right? So we may all agree that Hitler uh, deserved to be executed, but in real terms, Hitler does not come up every day in the American criminal justice system. You know, there's probably, uh, there's more than 10,000 murders every year. Some years there's as much as 15 or 20,000. And uh, the vast majority of those murders are not carried out by a Ted Bundy or a uh, Adolf Hitler, right? They're carried out by um, someone who is maybe killed for the first time in their life or they've killed a couple of people because there was a bank robbery that went wrong or they kill uh, their partner in a domestic violence situation. I mean, the vast, vast majority of murders are not these sort of, quote, worst of the worst Uh, You then do have people like, uh, I don't know, Dylan Roof comes up a lot in the contemporary American context. He's a very famous federal death row prisoner. Another example is maybe uh, Sarnayev, the Boston Marathon bombing defendant, right? And these are cases where one person was uh, pretty much indisputably involved in a really heinous crime, but involved lots and lots of victims. And... uh, But those cases are so rare that they're not really a meaningful way of debating the death penalty because they come up, you know, if everybody agrees, let's just pretend that everybody agreed that Dylan Roof deserved the death penalty. Well, there were, you know, X number of victims in that case. What if there were only five victims or two victims? What if there was only one victim when we said it's a hate crime? That's a decision that has to get made of whether an individual person deserves the death penalty. And it's a decision that's made uh by district attorneys who are you know prosecutors that we elect at the county level and then those prosecutors ask a jury of 12 citizens does this person deserve the death penalty right and uh the citizens have to to make that decision and uh they don't make it in a necessarily very consistent way or a way that would seem consistent after the fact because they're just looking at the case in front of them and so you zoom out And it turns out that whether you get the death penalty doesn't really have much to do with whether you're the worst of the worst. It has to do with, uh, I mean, to put it really bluntly, whether you live in Texas or not even that, whether you live in a very specific, you know, county or city in Texas that really wants to keep pursuing the death penalty. A lot of cities like Austin or Houston don't anymore. Um, And if you commit the exact same murder, you know, five miles away in a different county, Uh, you're not going to get the death penalty. Or if you commit the same murder in Colorado or Virginia or California, uh, you're not going to get executed. And uh, so the system that we have is actually much more messy than these sort of extreme examples would suggest. And I feel like I often, you know, it may seem like I'm skirting around the issue, but I really think that again, a moral question of whether we should have the death penalty at a certain point starts to feel a little bit like in the clouds or meaningless because it is so far away from the actual system that we have had for uh, several centuries now, but really the, the exact system we have is about 50 years old. And we've seen kind of over and over again that it fails to do a good job of picking who's really the worst of the worst, 
of making sure that the people who do get the death penalty are not disproportionately black or Latino that were or poor, right? That, you know, you could be Adolf Hitler, but you have the world's best lawyer. And so uh, you're not, you can afford that lawyer. And so you're probably right. not going to get the death penalty. There's just all these other factors that sort of distort and uh, mess with this kind of pure philosophical abstract debate. Right. If everyone was either a good person or Dylan Roof, then these questions would be a lot easier. Because um, I've been asked that, you know, what about Dylan Roof? I live in South Carolina. Um, I mm -hmm. actually went to the Mother Emanuel Church a, a, a matter of a few days after the shooting happened. I, I happened that I was already going to be in town. And I mean, that that's how close I, I am to that and everything that happened. And I get asked that a lot. Well, what about Dylan Roof? And I, and I honestly say, you know, Dylan Roof, I'm not going I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over the fact that Dylan Roof is almost assuredly going to be executed. The problem isn't is that Dylan Roof is an outlier, both in terms of the number of people he killed and probably more importantly to the question of of the death penalty, how certain we are that he did it. Right? He admits that he did it. Every bit of evidence suggests he did it. There's no reason to think anyone else did it or that anyone else was even involved in doing it. This was as clear cut as it possibly gets, whereas the vast majority of, of cases in general, but especially murder cases, are much more murky in terms of who actually did it. Uh, there was a study that was done, it was published in the Stanford Law Review uh, back in the 80s and 88, uh, and it documented 350 capital convictions where it was later proven that the convict had not actually committed that crime. Is there a, uh, I know there's not obviously an, an exact number, but is there like a, uh, a, a I guess, um, ballpark figure as to how many people have been convicted in a capital case and then later proven to either not have done it or at least for some conditions of the evidence or the trial uh you know being murky to be sufficient to to you know knock them back to life imprisonment imprisonment or to set them free do we do we have like a ballpark number of how many times uh capital punishment has been incorrectly used uh we don't know for sure because uh any given case, it's very, very hard to prove that an innocent person was executed. It's very hard to right. prove a negative sometimes, right? Like, uh, and, and when somebody's executed, by and large, the system sort of moves on. The lawyers for that person who may feel that they were innocent and fought to the very end kind of, you know, have they often have a statement like, I'm going to pray for the, the dead, but fight like hell for the living. I'm going to move on to the next case. So right. uh, we don't always have a very good backwards way of looking at who is innocent and guilty. Uh, that said, there have been a handful of uh, high-profile examples. Um, in the book, uh, I in the book that I wrote about the death penalty, "Let the Lord Sort Them," I uh, learned about a case. There was a I was doing an interview with the defense attorney about her uh, early days of her career. She was still a law student in the early '90s, and she said, "Have I ever told you the Eddie Ellis story?" And I said, "No. What's the Eddie Ellis story? I've never heard of that." And she goes into this whole account of how a man was about to be executed in Texas. This was in 1993. And they received a tip at her law office that uh, someone else had confessed to this crime and that that person was dead. But there was somehow proof that he'd confessed uh, that his 
his uh, widow still held on to. And so this woman flies to Houston from Austin and she shows up at an apartment complex in the middle of Houston, finds this woman. And the woman says, yes, you know, he did write a note saying that he had committed the crime, this other man who's not on death row. Uh, but it's in my storage unit. He was in the hospital. It's amid all these like mildewy papers uh, from the right, hospital. Right. So they go, they dig through all of these papers, they find it. And it's literally this other man confessing to a crime that that somebody's about to be executed for. Uh, and um, they bring this and the judges say, nope doesn't matter. We, we don't want to look at this evidence. And uh, we think maybe this is fraudulent. And uh, we don't buy it. They even had to get a handwriting expert to testify like this is really the same guy's handwriting, still didn't move the courts and this guy was executed. And to me, what's shocking about that story is that there was pretty clearly a, a strong potential for an innocent person having been executed. But the fact that I just heard that story because I was hours in into an interview with a defense lawyer saying like, oh, I'm going to just go tell you a random war story from my past. I right. Googled this case. There was no indication of these innocence claims, you know, anywhere easy to find on the internet. The media had sort of totally ignored it at the time. Right. And um, it just suggested to me like, how many cases do we not know about, right? Where it seems from the newspaper articles, oh, this person is absolutely guilty or absolutely uh, let's say, even if they're guilty, not suffering from schizophrenia or some really severe mental illness that sort of means they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, we think we have the full picture because we have what we have in a newspaper article, but often there's a whole sort of ocean of things we don't know. And uh, it takes a lot of investigative work to really nail down the innocent and the guilty in these cases. So that anecdote was really kind of shook me uh, and I then found that there was a wide range of estimates of how many innocent people have been executed. You'll see, you know, estimates at the really conservative end of like 0.001, uh, but still acknowledging that it happens all the way up to right. something more like 4%. Um, another figure that I think kind of helps me wrap my brain around it and is really compelling is that um, for every nine executions, there's been one innocent person exonerated from death row, yeah. right? So there's a really high rate of people who are proven innocent while on death row and kind of, but for them having a really good lawyer or new evidence coming out later, they might have been executed and they were on the path towards execution. So, um, you know, I can go on all day about individual cases where I think there's pretty compelling evidence that innocent people have been executed. Uh, people also debate, how much of a risk are we as a country willing to take or how many innocent people is it okay to execute to maintain the system? And those are, you know, debates I think worth having. Uh, but I do think it's sort of at this point really disingenuous to try to argue that we've never in executed an innocent person. I think there's just yeah. too many cases where, you know, it's 99% likely that they were innocent. There's enough cases like that, that we can be pretty certain that it's happened and happened perhaps many times. And if it's, you know, a perfect, and, if it has actually happened, uh, even just once or twice, that should be enough to say, put them on life in prison uh, uh, instead. Because if someone's in prison for life and then it turns out they didn't do it, they still lost all those years, but, you know, they can be let free. They can, there can be a settlement. They can get money. They can something, you know, something, there can be an apology. As opposed to if someone's executed, not only is there no way to give them their life back, but the likelihood of government being willing to admit that they killed someone at, incorrectly at, or killed someone that should not have been executed, uh, that didn't commit the crime, 
uh, as opposed to saying, oh, you know, we, we, we convicted this person, uh, but we're going to let them out now. Oh, you know, what, what great news. They get to, you know, go free after however many years of being in prison unjustly. That's a lot less likely to happen. And, you know, I, I recently had someone say to me, you know, name just one person that was executed that, you know, we know didn't do it. And I said, well, uh, Nate Forrest was executed earlier this year. And not only do we know he didn't do it, the prosecution said he didn't do it. No one ever disputed that he didn't do it. Uh, but they said that uh, he was a part of it. And the only evidence that they provided to suggest that he was a part of this conspiracy conspiracy to kill a bunch of police officers was that he had sworn at some police officers earlier that day. That was the entire that the entire case hinged on that. And really what it hinged on, and this goes back to what you were saying about how this has far more to do with the you know uh, political considerations of the jurors making this decision often, the reason that they executed him was because they were so angry at the fact that four officers had been murdered that or three three officers had been killed and another one another one shot and, and hospitalized that someone had to die for it and they already had the person uh who was executed who ended up being executed who actually killed them but they needed someone that you know they needed blood they wanted people to die and so nate who was the one who was being uh, uh, assaulted uh, by the officers when they were shot, they just threw him into it as well. And he literally died after, uh, you know, years, I think over a decade of people trying to get him uh, set free or at the very least taken off of death row because he literally didn't ever kill anyone. His crime was being assaulted by cops right before they were shot by some by someone else. Um, that's a perfect example of how the death penalty is is much more commonly used than, for example, a Dylan Roof case or something like that. Yeah, there's a case that uh, I find really compelling in uh, Texas right now of a guy named Marvin Lewis Guy who is in jail currently facing a death penalty trial. And um, his case... Uh, was a no-knock raid, right, where uh, the cops burst into his apartment and he didn't, he claims, I, I believe that, that he didn't know who it was and he started firing, right? And this is Texas where that's not an uncommon thing to do. And uh, he ended up um, shooting, hitting and, and killing a police officer. And as a result of that is facing a death sentence um, for what he claims is self-defense. And right, this is sort of practically, I mean, there's fewer and fewer death sentences every year, but what I'm seeing is that the ones that do get handed out are uh, not, it's not like it's distilling to the worst of the worst over time. It's not like we're sort of getting fewer and fewer cases. And so more of those left are the Dylan Roofs or Cernayevs. Uh, right. There are cases like this one where it's a kind of random happenstance of there's a lot of, you know, local social anger. Uh, there is a district attorney, a prosecutor who um, has kind of made their career on being tough on crime and doesn't want to back down. And uh, all the judges uh, and prosecutors uh, in these state courts are uh, by and large elected. And there's just a lot of political incentive for them to kind of um, uh, uh, honor that kind of bloodlust of the society as opposed to kind of making um, a deliberate and careful decision about which cases really are the worst of the worst. Yeah, I, I, I think a good way to put it is there are probably people out there who deserve to die. I think government are the least, the last group of people that I trust to make that that just that qualification of who is it that deserves to die and, and who isn't. Um, another argument, and it's it's hard to do this to have this conversation without focusing on the arguments in favor of it, because ultimately 
we're not just having a discussion here. We're engaged in a debate, and, and I'm on your side on this debate. We're engaged in a debate about whether or not the government should have the power to take someone who is already in custody and say, no, you need to die for whatever the crime is. Um, and so it's hard to not do it in that, in that case. We often hear, a common refrain that I hear is, well, the taxpayer shouldn't have to pay for a murderer to live off of them for free for, you know, 20, 30, 40, however many years until they die. You know, it's much better. It's much better for the taxpayer for these, you know, assuming again that they're all murderers for these filthy murderers uh, to, you know, to die and, uh, and, and, you know, meet their justice immediately. You know, the, the, the 25 cent solution or whatever. Um is it actually effective from a cost standpoint? Like, what what is the actual truth regarding the cost of the average death penalty uh, trial, conviction phase, appeal phase? You know, from from being indicted on a capital case to when they're executed to being indicted on a, a life in prison case and and dying in prison. What is the difference in cost there? Is there a cost savings there? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. And I should say, like, I don't see my kind of public role as being pro or anti-death penalty. Um, you know, I kind of abide by a kind of very like traditional old school, I think, journalistic approach that says, like, the point here isn't to advocate one way or another. It's to open everybody's eyes and sort of, like, make, give people the tools to make better decisions based on actual facts as opposed to assumptions, right? And um, cost is a really actual good Actual journalism. I mean, it's it, and it, it sounds real. I think when people say actual journalism, they hold it up as this uh, sort of almost like sacred thing, or or they or they hate on it as this sort of um, you know voodoo where you're making stuff up. Uh, regardless of where you fall, I mean, it's really. I also feel like I'm always on a mission to kind of demystify it. I mean, all actual journalism means is really calling people, really asking government agencies for documents. Um, right. really, you know, spending the time reading those documents that are thousands of pages and finding the people that are hard to find and just sort of like doing the labor. So the reader, the average member of the public who doesn't have hundreds of hours to spend on the death penalty or whatever else right. can, um, trust that somebody else is out there doing all this labor and kind of distilling what you need to know and clarifying right. what can be very murky. So cost is a great example of something that's really murky. There's a lot of assumptions, um, and the assumptions tend to be, uh, very wrong. And that's not just because people are malicious or lying. It's because I think there's an intuitive sense that surely it's cheaper to execute somebody than it is to put them on, in prison forever. Right. It is not. Uh, it costs uh, tens of thousands of dollars to, to hold somebody in a prison for a year. It's an expensive thing to do. Uh, you have to feed them. As they get older, you have to pay for their medical care. Uh, and the cost of that can vary a lot by state. It can vary a lot by, um, I mean, to be really kind of frank, how old they get and what kinds of medical problems they have because taxpayers right. are on the dime if they get uh, cancer or something. But uh, to execute somebody and take them through the entirety of the appeals process is almost always more. And in some cases, it's millions of dollars more. And the reason for that is because um, we have decided as a legal system and as a country, people who are going to face the death penalty deserve a lawyer and they deserve to have their cases fought. And we may say, oh, well, it's not worth spending that much money on a lawyer, but it's the defense lawyer that's going to figure out if this person is innocent and make that case in court and make right. it well, right? And it's not a cheap or easy thing to do. I mean, I'm thinking of a, a case, um, a pretty famous Texas case of somebody who appeared innocent and was executed 
uh, was a man named Cameron Todd Willingham. And uh, the story of that case is that um, his house caught on fire. He had, I think, two very young daughters and they died in the blaze. And um, the state argued that he set the fire intentionally. His lawyers uh, argued up until the very last minute and then even after he was executed that no, it was actually an accidental fire. And um, in order to puzzle out whether it was an accidental fire or intentionally set, you need fire experts and fire experts, you know, aren't, don't work for free. And, and uh, you, it costs hundreds of dollars uh, an hour to have those experts to have, let's say, psychological experts sort of figure out whether this man is uh, faking a mental illness or he's really mentally ill to assess whether somebody has an intellectual disability and is actually functioning right. with an IQ of 50, which right or wrong, whether you think it's right or wrong, the the Supreme Court has said it violates the Constitution to execute somebody with an intellectual disability. So, you know, it costs a ton of money for experts and for lawyers at every stage of the case. And these appeals go on for years and years and years. But even at the front end, it costs millions of dollars. And it's even gotten to the point uh, where prosecutors, particularly in smaller towns, particularly maybe with a more libertarian uh, bent to them who really care about fiscal responsibility uh, for their community, have said, I still maybe morally support the death penalty, but I'm not going to seek it anymore because uh, we think there are better ways to spend our money. Um, A really dramatic example of this was uh, Jasper, Texas, which is really a tiny town in Texas that is famous because there was uh, what is essentially a modern day lynching that happened there um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was a a man named James Byrd who was killed by three white men who were openly uh, white supremacist. Uh, Three men went on trial. Two of them faced the death penalty. And it cost so much money that Jasper, Texas had to raise its tax rate. And so everybody in the town was paying like, I don't remember the exact figure, but a lot more money in taxes every year just to pay for this uh, trial. And uh, one of the county commissioners said, honestly, a death penalty trial is equivalent to a flood or a tornado that wipes out roads and bridges. And we as the government have to come in and pay for that with taxpayer money. And you increasingly see prosecutors say, uh, like I said before, whatever, I still support the death penalty, but like my community needs roads and bridges more than it needs to execute this one guy for this one murder. Uh, Let's let the state pay for, you know, let's let the entire state of Texas, this is another actual important point that's very wonky and in the weeds, but very important. When somebody spends the rest of their life in prison, that is uh, a cost shared by millions and millions of Texas taxpayers. When somebody faces trial for the death penalty, that's the financial responsibility of the county, which may only have 50,000 people in it. And so that's millions of dollars that is falling on this tiny town. Directly those taxpayers. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, and the thing is, so you've got this much more cost in not just the trial, but there's also additional cost in uh, death row housing, housing of the, or uh, I guess caging of the, of the, of the inmate, as opposed to life in prison. Life in prison, they're a maximum security prison. In death row, there are actually more corrections officers than there are death row inmates, or, or there's almost like a one-to-one ratio in some cases. And so that's more expensive. And they have to have a certain period of time of appeals that they can appeal it. So uh, the average, and usually it's like 20 to 30 years before someone's actually executed for the crime 
they committed typically? Yeah. Yeah. It ranges a lot. And I don't remember the average off the top of my head, but it can range anywhere from 10 years to I've heard of cases where it took 30 or 40 years for the person to be executed. And there's appeals and lawyers that are getting paid that entire time, but also um, death rows. I don't know the exact cost, but they tend to be more expensive because they tend to be higher security. They're almost always totally solitary confinement. And uh, those restrictions cost a lot of money to implement. Now, there have been studies of people who used to be on death row and then go into the general population, let's say because their cases are returned in a court or something. And those people uh, generally, according to some of the scholarship, don't turn out to be more violent, right? There's often an argument that people need to be on death row and executed because they're going to be dangerous in the future. In fact, Texas has this um, particular quirk to its laws where in order to get the death penalty, the jury has to decide. They have to basically predict the future and say, we think this person is going to be dangerous uh, going forward if we don't execute them. But the data, to the extent it exists, has suggested that um, most people who get the death penalty aren't actually dangerous in the future because um, from, you know, the kind of case studies we can find of people who ended up in the general population, they don't go on to assault other prisoners or corrections officers. Um, Most people just in the world become less violent as they get older, right? Like when you hear about uh, a bar fight, it's seldom between 60 year old men, right? It's between 20 20 year olds. And uh, there's a kind of aging out of violence that tends to happen. So the longer people are in prison, the more violence is really just not that big a part of their lives or what they do. It's interesting. And, and so even in the midst of the additional cost of because part of a big part of why there's more cost to the cost of death row or, or, mm-hmm. or capital punishment is, as you said, because the the burden of proof is, is a, a little bit higher and the amount of resources that are put into proving that because it's irreversible once you kill someone. Right. So it's not like in the old days where they just bring them in and someone goes, yeah, they did it. And, and they go, OK, they did it. And they go and hang them the next day. It, there has to be years of of, uh, of of appeals. There has to be much more resources put into proving that this is a suitable person to be executed. Like you mentioned, the IQ stuff. And we can talk about race norming of IQs in a bit as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, all of these things. And yet we still see anywhere from, you know, a fraction of a percent to as high as four or five percent that are being wrongfully convicted and and executed or wrongfully convicted and almost executed, which means that the only way you could lower those costs by having them in death row for less time and having less resources being put into their defense during the trial, defense and prosecution during the trial, all that's going to do is exponentially increase the number of wrongful convictions and executions. So the so the there is no way to make this fiscally responsible or or fiscally conservative make this cost less than imprisonment. There's no way to make it cheap. The There's lives. no way to do yeah. it on the cheap. There's no way to right. make it cheap other than to ensure that you know thousands of people are being uh, or at least hundreds of people or at least a, a large percentage of the people being convicted are straight up just being railroaded and executed uh, without you know having actually committed the crime. So there there is no from a fiscal standpoint there's no upside conversation there now what about deterrence because that's the other thing we hear is well even if these other things are happening even if it costs too much uh even if it uh you know there are occasionally some you know broken eggs for this omelet we have here we still need the omelet because if it wasn't for the death penalty maurice the reality is that there'd be way more murders out there is there any evidence to suggest that this actually deters crime or, or certainly at least deters murder yeah i um 
a few years ago was asked to go on Fox News and talk to a prosecutor about the death penalty. And uh, he confronted me with this question about deterrence. And I said, well, to be honest, I've never interviewed somebody who was considering um, committing a murder before they did it. Right. And and about what was going on in their mind. It's not a it's not a kind of interview we can do very often. And I think um, we should sort of exercise. I did not say this because uh, I was my blood pressure was too high to think of it. But uh, you know, I think we have to exercise some humility about what we can know about the decisions people make when um, right. they commit murder. But to the extent we can measure something like deterrence, uh, there has not been ever scholarly proof that a sort of wide number of scholars can agree on um, and peer review that suggests that the death penalty deters crime. And part of how you can measure that is you can say, well, do places with the death penalty have fewer murders, right? And the answer right. to that tends to be no. And then it sometimes becomes a circular argument where people come back and say, well, that's precisely why we need the death penalty, because Texas has more murders, right? But then you're kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Um, deterrence is also, uh, it's it's compelling, but we know that the vast majority of people who commit murder do it uh, in the kind of heat of the moment when they don't necessarily intend to commit the murder when they begin doing whatever it is they're doing, whether it's a right. fight, whether it's a robbery, uh I mean, we can say if somebody goes into a, a liquor store with a gun, um, we can, it stands to reason uh, that they should assume that maybe someone's going to die. Maybe somebody's going to get killed. Right. But I think if you ask that person ahead of time, uh, are you going to go murder somebody to rob the liquor store? They're like, no, the gun is just to scare the person. Right. I mean, we've all seen movies. We can imagine the kind of psychology there. And uh, uh, never once has any have I ever heard an anecdote of someone in prison now saying, yeah, I really thought about the death penalty before I committed a crime. Like I've just never heard that. And I've interviewed right. dozens of prisoners over the course of a decade and I've never heard it. So that there might be prisoners who admit to being deterred by the death penalty that, you know, they, they, uh, uh, I mean, cause most people who are in prison maybe didn't um, have, have been in and out of trouble with the law for many years. So there's plenty of examples of people who might be talking about different anecdotes in their life. I've just never heard an anecdote like that, which, makes me suspicious of these claims that we can deter crime by having the death penalty. Well, like you said, the murder rates in areas that have the death penalty versus ones that don't don't support that. So that would be a good way to measure it. And honestly, is there someone out there that goes, man, if I murder that person, I could be executed. I'm not going to do it. Sure, maybe. But if that's the case, I would imagine that same person, if there wasn't a death penalty, would say, well, if I murder this person, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life in prison. That's worth it. Let's do it. I'm going to go ahead and murder this person. Like the, the, the fact that there would be any if punishment is a deterrence, then I would imagine uh, we, I think it's safe to 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 speculate anyway, that someone who would be who would literally commit murder were it not for the death penalty would also probably not commit murder because they don't want to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Like if they're if they have that kind of a, a, a forward thought process in terms of deciding whether or not to off another human being, I would imagine that just any level of high punishment like, you know, life imprisonment or even a long time, a long time in prison would probably be enough to deter such a reasonable person who probably come to think of it probably isn't thinking much about murdering people if they're if they're if they're thinking that far ahead they're probably not thinking yeah i need to murder this guy 
I have also heard the claim, uh, and I, I, I've heard it said that uh, somebody considering whether to commit murder may actually be more likely to kill somebody because they're worried about them being a witness against them, right? And so the the worse the punishment is, the more incentive there is to kill oh. somebody who could potentially be a witness, um, which is kind of an abstract way of talking about it. And yeah. I also don't have you know, a bunch of interview material to back, yeah, to yeah. back it up. Um, but I've heard that argument made and it, it's compelling to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, deterrence is a bit of a red herring and it tends to be one of the kind of major uh, defenses of the death penalty. But I, I think another, you know, just grand point about the United States that's worth making in this context is uh, over the last 20 years, the number of death sentences and executions have dropped uh, hugely, I mean, compared to where they were 20 years ago. And the number of murders has not like zoomed up to account for it, right? It's not like there's been like a inverse relationship between the two. Um, death sentences and executions have gone down and so have murders. Yeah, it's yeah, I, I've not seen any evidence. And you're right, that's an actually an excellent point that the fact that there is a, a harsher punishment could actually lead someone in that moment to go, I can't do time for this. I'm going to kill this, you know, the only witness to this. That actually, that sounds, if we're talking speculation of, of anecdotes that we don't even know exist or, or that there, there might be an existence of, that's far more compelling to me than someone going, you know what, I'd kill you right now, but then they'd kill me back. It just, it, I don't see, I don't see that. But, but if they put me in jail for the rest of my life, Mm, that's worth it. I'm going to kill you. I, I don't. I don't. I don't see that. So, um, and like you said, then there's the circular thing of when you tell them that there's more murders, they go, "Well, that's proof that we need the death penalty." And it's like, no, you. That's proof that it doesn't work. It's you. That's literally why we're saying that doesn't work. Um, yeah. It's, I'll ahead. just say one more point on that, which is um, that uh, you made the point that people aren't really thinking that far ahead when they commit murder. And by and large, you're very right. I mean, the, the vast majority of people on death row have some combination of, um, intellectual disability or mental illness, but also even if not, uh, severe trauma in their life, you know, childhood trauma on par with having served in a combat zone in the military. Um, I mean, one of the people who was executed under the Trump administration um, had been sexually assaulted as a child by her step parents who had then enlisted other adults to sexually assault her. I mean, the, the, the level of trauma is so severe that I think we all are a little bit uh, like, I think that we're not exercising enough humility when we try to put ourselves in the mind of what a potential murderer thinks because the trauma level in these people's brains is so intense that it's really hard to put your your put yourself in their shoes. Right, which which is why we're not in their shoes, right? Like it's it, it is hard mm -hmm. to picture what that's like. And of course that doesn't mean that she shouldn't have been punished, right? You can't say, well this terrible thing happened to you therefore you should be able to do. But but that doesn't it, it does suggest that maybe killing her was the wrong route. Like, yes, there's a way to punish her. There's a way to make sure that, you know, she's not posing a threat to anyone else. And we could, you know, that that's a whole conversation about restorative justice. It's actually interesting to me that a lot of the people who will talk about deterrence and making sure there isn't more crime, if you talk about the studies that show that restorative forms of justice, instead of using retribution, actually lead to there being less crime and less reoffense. Now suddenly they don't want to have the conversation about preventing future crimes because it, it seems like the the desire to 
you know, off someone that they think is unfit to exist is, is the real reason. And they're just kind of using all these other things as a, as a, as an excuse for it. Is there, in fact, that's actually a question. How much of this, and I mean, I know there may not be a study on this, but just sort of based on the, the conversations you've had, mm-hmm. how much of this is just people using the death penalty as sort of a, uh, I guess, a litmus test for their belief that there are just maybe not even entire groups, but certainly individuals who just need to die. And that, you know, and that even if these aren't those individuals, there at least should be a system of, of deciding who should just who should be dead. Yeah, I mean, one way to talk about that is uh, I read dozens of trial transcripts for this book um, of people who are facing the death penalty. Um, Often I was especially interested in the speeches, the opening and closing statements that prosecutors and defense lawyers would make at the beginning and in the end of the trial. where They really kind of make their pitch to the jury of why does this person deserve to to die? And uh, the word that kept showing up uh, was evil, right? That prosecutors saw um, these people who committed crimes as evil and their crime, they would also use the word senseless. Uh, But there was definitely a sense that people who were um, facing the death penalty and whose crimes were really hard to explain uh, must be, you know, activated by evil. And we don't typically think of um, courtrooms as being a venue for this sort of very Judeo-Christian talk of good and evil, uh, but they really are. Um, And the other thing I would see in these trial transcripts was a lot of what I would consider racially coded language. So you occasionally, you know, a prosecutor would use the N-word. Occasionally, an expert witness would say, well, Black people are just dangerous. But far more often, you would hear, you would see in the transcript, a prosecutor say, every night when you walk around on the streets, aren't you afraid of them? Those people who make it so that you can't go to bed and put your head on the pillow and feel safe in your own home, uh, they're out to get you. And yes, you could say, well, they're just talking about serial killers. They're talking about murderers. Um, they're talking about psychopaths. But in some of these contexts, especially in like a Southern courtroom, you know, only 50 years after there were lynchings in the courthouse square, the language of fear and evil feels like it is a kind of way of talking about race without talking about it, right? Without tripping the wire of somebody right. saying, oh, well, that prosecutor is a racist. Uh Um, I I saw so much of that in these trial transcripts and it's hard to measure and it's to a certain extent by nature kind of qualitative and and, um, analytical, but it's there for sure. Well, and there's a level of deniability, like you said, they're like, well, I was just, I meant murderers. And, and, And even if they did mean murderers, there is an otherization happening there, right? Like there's oh, yeah. this, this isn't a person who did something bad and we have to figure out what their punishment is. This is the reason you exist in fear. You know, this thing that is, you know, that is is the reason that you're scared to sleep at night, we have to kill them. And, and you know, even if, even if they truly don't mean it from a racial aspect, and we're, we're going to talk about that in the next, actually, um, there's definitely a, a dehumanization of the person in front of them. Whether you think whatever punishment this person should, should, should be subjected to as a result of what they did, any attempt to dehumanize and otherize people 
is the first step in making their punishment exponentially worse than what we would have otherwise stomached because we're no longer talking about a person. We're talking about scum. We're talking about a, a plague on our planet that needs to be dealt with. So according to the ACLU, uh, there's a, just over 3,300 people that are on uh, death row today in, in the U.S. Uh, almost all of them, virtually all of them, are poor. Um a significant number of them are what we would consider to be mentally disabled. Uh, nearly half, more than 40% of them are black. Uh, and putting, putting that in perspective, 13% of the population, actually 12% of the population is black. So they're being disproportionately represented in death row by a nearly four to one margin. Um, and uh, a, a disproportionately high number are Native American, Latino, and, and Asian. Um, why do you think you know, it's easy. I, I, I will admit that my first thought there when I see that there's a higher percentage of black, Latin, Native American and Asian people there, that at least part of that is that those are, are people that are also disproportionately more likely to be poor. And it seems like the death penalty is almost almost always, except in maybe some high profile cases, almost always used against poor people. Um, is there a, 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 do you believe or do you see evidence to suggest that there is an actual, like a, a racist reason for why they're being uh, misrepresented past just the, the, I guess the racial element uh, that's based in why so many are, are poor to begin with? Is, is this, I guess, but why, why do you believe that minorities are so disproportionately sentenced to the death penalty? It's a good question, and it's a complicated one, right? Uh, you can sort of tell a historical story about how the death penalty uh, is kind of the cousin or the, the the successor to the lynchings, the extrajudicial murders that we carried out as a country in the early 20th and 19th century. Um, uh, and you can talk about the... Um, you know, racial, racially coded language that prosecutors uh, and judges often use. Um, there's also tactics uh, in a lot of states where um, prosecutors have become very good at um, keeping black uh, citizens off of juries so that um, people are not really being judged by juries of their peers. They're being judged by um, um, like white juries that are more likely to otherize them. Uh, there's also an interesting element. So the, the times that there have been studies of, um, you know, trying to control for every factor other than race in the decisions of jurors and prosecutors and judges, um, they have found often that there's a bit of a, you know, bump where you're just a little more likely to get the death penalty if you are black. However, uh, if your victim is a white woman, you are way more likely to get the death penalty, regardless of whether you are white or black. So there are racial disparities that play out in these complicated ways that are not just right. about the race of the defendant. Uh, they're also about sort of which victims we think deserve this kind of justice or deserve more kind of justice. And, and I think that, uh, one reason why people have been willing to look past the racial disparities in the death penalty and also the um, uh, uh, the fact that it's big government. I think one reason why a lot of conservatives who tend to be very concerned about big government are okay with government doing the biggest thing of all, which is taking its own citizens' lives, is because they don't see it as the government. They see it as a service to victims, right? That that uh, there's this family and her daughter was murdered and uh, we want we want to, as a society, produce justice for them and prosecutors, police, judges, and jurors are all in service of that grieving family. 
And we tend to have more sympathy when those people are white, right? So if you murder someone who's black, you're maybe less likely to get the death penalty. Um, but the last thing I would say about why they are so overrepresented on, why minorities are overrepresented on death row, and they're also overrepresented um, among uh, murders in general, right? Like there's just more crime in minority uh, communities and, um, and more victims in minority communities. And part of this is because of all manner of other racial disparities in our country in terms of mental health, in terms of how we dole out mental health, in terms of how we uh, deal with poverty, in terms of how we deal with the trauma that people experience as a result of the kind of mixture of factors of being poor, of being more susceptible um, because of their economic situation to um, substance abuse, to uh, um, all kinds of other struggles that lead to more violence in their lives, right? More domestic abuse. All of these dysfunctions are societal dysfunctions and, and they are the product of a failure to invest in, uh, as a country, in, in these communities. And that means that there's more crime in these communities and that means that there's more people on, in prison and on death row from them. Because, um, I mean, the way I described it just now is a little bit heady, but uh, if you are poor and you go to prison and you are subjected, let's say, let's just talk about some like sort of abstract, but um, um, like an example from, from real life, right? Uh, let's say you have two 18 year olds, one white and one black. The, the black person is more likely to be poor and they're more likely to have fewer educational and um, social resources. Uh, the white kid is more likely to have gone to a good school and have uh, some some money in their in their bank and and their family owns some property. Both go to prison at eighteen because of something really minor. Let's say they had a, a joint, right? right. Uh, and they both go to prison and they're both uh, viciously beat up in prison. They suffer horrible, horrible violence, right? Um, they then come out of prison and because of that wealth that's in the white community, that white uh, kid is more likely to come out and get the kinds of help that will keep him from falling into a kind of cycle of violence and poverty and dysfunction that will lead him back to prison, right? Um, he maybe will be treated as though he made a mistake when he was a kid and he's been traumatized by his experience in prison. So like, let's help him, let's get him therapy, et cetera the black uh, young man is going to come out and have less a family with less money um uh less of an ability to get into high school or college and is more likely to get set down this path where the only way to make ends meet is perhaps to uh to engage in more illegal activities and and those become a slippery slope towards more violence so it's not that people wake up one day and they say i'm evil i'm more violent it's that uh crime doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's the product of all of these social forces. And the people who suffer more in all other kinds of ways are also going to suffer more from crime, whether as victims or as perpetrators. Like there's just going to be more crime in those environments um, because crime is almost like an indicator of a lack of a community's um, health and, 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 and resources. Does yeah, that make sense? Which is, I realize I'm speaking in a very heady way, but... but well, and, uh, and no, it, it does because this is... The reason that we see intergenerational poverty is that when the, and, and this is now kind of libertarian speak, when the ladders have been removed and all that's left is a safety net that at best just keeps you from dying and any opportunity that's in that area has basically been sucked out and the only opportunities that are there uh, that don't involve being some kind of... Uh, 
uh, exponential high performer, some kind of, you know, be able to be a, uh, a you know, a, a really good athlete or a really good entertainer or uh, a really good, um, uh, what's another one, someone who just has an incredible business acumen and is able to grow a multi-million dollar business out of literally nothing, you know, for the vast majority of people who aren't, you know, aren't, you know, these, these you know, diamonds in the rough, the one in a million types, um, they don't really have anything to be able to get out of that. And even putting aside the financial a aspect of that, that if the only real way to make money is a life of crime um, or, or, you know, some kind of, you know, well, basically just a life of crime in one way or another. Um, also, just the the anxiety that exists of not being able to provide, of not being able to get out of this and of the resentment that happens there. I mean, it's why poor people tend to victimize and rob other poor people. Uh, it's not just a financial consideration because then the, the logical conclusion would be that they'd go after rich people. But it's it's also the fact that if they tried to go into that neighborhood and do that, there would be a sufficient uh, uh, deterrent force to be able to actually stop them from doing it as opposed to their poorly policed communities where police largely exist to, to raise revenue from poor people. So in the midst of all of that, to now get you know railroaded through a, a death penalty case where where either you didn't do it or you did do it, but if you had been wealthier, you would have been able to fight it and get it plead down to something else uh, or, or be able to successfully fight it in court uh, and at least not get the death row from it. Now you're being railroaded into death row. That wouldn't have happened if you, were, if you weren't more poor. And because of all sorts of historical reasons, uh, pe minorities, people of color, ethnic and religious minorities, immigrants and people like that tend to be poorer. So even if it is just a straight up financial, you know, economic, you know, classist problem, even if there isn't a racial aspect, which is certainly in certain places, I live in the deep south, there's a racial aspect, at least here, even if that weren't there now, uh, even if it were colorblind now, the historical things that have led to people of color being more likely to be in poverty are going to disproportionately affect them on this. So, no, it's it's a it's a this is a perfect example of, of why, like I said, government is is the last group of people that I think should be deciding who should live or who should die. Um, they've done a really bad job of that in general. I mean, we just this is the same government. And I know it's it's obviously being executed differently, but the same organization in a different department. Uh, just did a drone strike against a family that they thought was ISIS. Uh, and, and now this same, from this same larger network of government, we're now saying, well, holy crap, I can't believe they just killed a family with a drone strike. This organization or this, this network of organizations should definitely be deciding who amongst us in our community should be allowed to live or die. Yeah, I also think that there's, um, you know, the government in theory is the elected officials of all of us, but there are a lot of corrupting influences over that, um, whether it's, you know, big business. Um, I'm just thinking of sort of the way that we decide as a society which kinds of deaths should 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 lead to which kinds of accountability. So, for example, we decide that if somebody goes into a gas station and shoots uh, the clerk, um, they uh, have committed a murder and um, they should go to prison for the rest of their life and maybe even get the death penalty. There's plenty of, um, not recently, but in the 90s, there were plenty of people who were getting the death penalty for, for doing that. Um, but at the same time, if, uh, um, you know, some corporate, uh, you know, 
leaders in a boardroom decide to, um, you know, create the conditions for the opioid crisis, for example, and many, many people die as a result of overdoses, right. uh, accountability looks like some fines, maybe some amount of money that's like really not going to make these these leaders lose any sleep, but um, they're not going to go to prison for it. And we think justice is is primarily financial and it's not about depriving them of liberty, right? So we make these decisions about uh, what a murder is that are in some ways um, subjective and they don't have to be what they are, right? Because um, there are plenty of decisions made um, in the corporate context that, that do lead to people dying, whether in a hospital or an overdose or whatever. Uh, right. And we don't talk about those the same way. We only think of murder as interpersonal violence. Yeah. And, well, because even though the threat of someone dying in the opioid crisis is wildly higher than the threat of some, you know, evil person coming and murdering you, like it's, it's not even comparable. And yet, like you said, we look at that as a statistical thing to be handled as a financial thing, even though it's basically mass murder. Um, it's a very interesting thing. Now, you uh, you wrote your book, uh, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Uh, that was written uh, or published back, uh, about two years ago. What did you, was that a sort of a historical timeline of the death penalty in the U.S.? You know, what, what, what were you writing about there? What, what was that about? Yeah, um, so I, I started, um, I finished it about two years ago, but it came out this past uh, January. And it is, um, you know, I, in the book, I set up the fact that the death penalty has been part of American uh, history since the very beginning. But over the last 50 years, there's really been this, uh, rise and fall, where it almost disappeared entirely in the 1960s. And then starting in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the numbers zoomed up, they reached a peak around 99, 2000. And then they've been falling ever since. And um, that coincided with a big rise and fall in crime. It also coincided with the rise of uh, what we consider the system of mass incarceration of, of you know, far more people being in prison uh, and having harsher punishments, longer terms of incarceration than any other society has really ever produced. So um, that all uh, is the kind of big historical sort of um, context for what I'm trying to do. But I tell that story with plenty of, you know, the relevant legislative and Supreme Court battles, but it's really about individual people who experienced that and how their lives were shaped by it. So uh, you meet a prosecutor who sent several men to death row and then eventually became a judge who started to question the death penalty. You meet a defense lawyer who committed her whole life to fighting against the death penalty and keeping people off death row and learning different tactics to try to kind of convince the public uh, successfully to see to to send fewer people to death row, uh, even when it was very unpopular to do that. Right, this woman has received death threats. Uh, you meet a guy on death row. You meet um, family members of people who have been murdered, who are sort of debating amongst themselves, like, is the death penalty justice? Uh, our loved one has been killed. We're, you know, horribly um, affected by this. And we have to decide, do we want to push the government to, to execute that person? Um, and then you even meet like a member of a jury who's basically just like a, a working professional who was living in Houston in the mid 2000s and got tapped to decide the, whether a man lived or died. Right. And what that was like for him right. on the trauma of going through that, because the point of the book is 
like I said earlier, I want people to understand the system as it's really lived, as it really exists in a really kind of granular, practical way. And in order to do that, I can't just stay up in the clouds talking about Supreme Court cases and um, congressional right. hearings, right? Like I want people to kind of stew in the murk of the real life stories, uh, the, the real story of the defense lawyer finding out that her innocent client is about to be executed and racing against the clock against a system that's that's set up to uh, to to for her to lose and for her client to get executed. And then she has to go and actually watch the execution. Right. Um, I want people to confront that head on because my my understanding of where we are at this moment right now in 2021 is that the death penalty it's fallen in usage. It's used pretty rarely, but it's still around. And we as a country have to decide, like, what are the next 50 years? Do we want to kind of keep going with this experiment? Do we want to rev it back up? Trump wanted us to rev it back up. Do we agree with that? Or do we think that this has been a mistake and we should learn from these mistakes and try to create a more humane uh, system? So, so that's the kind of uh, conversation I want to have with the reader by sharing all these stories about what the death penalty has really been like over the last 50 years. And that's good that you're doing it as, you know, obviously focus, having some focus on the the data and and history behind it, but also telling the stories. People connect with stories, obviously, you know that you're an author. Uh, but also many people and I say this as someone who is not one of these people, I look at a graph and have the emotional connection to what those rises and falls look like. Most people aren't wired that way. They need to hear the story. They need to know, they need to, you know, telling the story. I can look at, you know, this increase or, and, and that's probably, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, <laughs> there are some, a small minority of people that can look at a, a chart of, you know, wrongful convictions and at least somewhat, at least in the abstract picture, what emotionally that was doing to, to all the people that were involved in that. Whereas sometimes people need to actually hear the story. E even for me, it's important to hear that story and that human, that human story behind it. So I'm glad that you wrote it. And I, I do think, un uh, unfortunately, as someone who, who is an abolitionist who would like to see an end to, to the the death penalty at all levels of government. Uh, I do unfortunately think it's a debate that's going to be raging for at least a few more years. So I'm, I'm glad that you are contributing as a journalist to giving people the, the information to be able to make a decision for themselves. Uh, I think we should be having it, you know, and um, uh, uh, Trump sort of threw it into the limelight in a way that I didn't really expect. Uh, you know, there were 13 people executed under him um, and that got a lot of media attention. But, you know, the Texas still executes about a dozen people a year and you don't hear about it nearly as much. And so yeah. I feel like I and other journalists are just like kind of beating this drum and hoping people hear it um, because this is something that our government is doing in our names. So we should at least understand it and have more formed opinions about it that are kind of grounded in the reality rather than in what we wish were true. Right. And that's a lot of this debate is what Especially, I, I say this as someone that used to support the death penalty. My mm. support for the death penalty was entirely on what I wanted it to be. I wanted mm -hmm. it to be a a very carefully and and um um and and an indiscriminately applied way of finding the most dangerous people in our society and removing them in a way that saved both victims and the taxpayers. And once I was exposed to all of the information that it was literally not a single one of those things, it was the exact opposite of all of those things, that was what led me to, 
uh, be in, to even question in the first place whether government should do that. But at the very least, say, well, at least at the very least, the way it's being applied now, that's wrong. But anyway, before I let you go, I, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on. You've been a, a fan. This has been a really great discussion. Um, before I let you go, I do want to give you a chance to give your your last word, your final thoughts. Uh, anything that you thought we didn't get a chance to talk about, anything you would like to promote, anything that is upcoming, uh, pretty much whatever you want to talk about for however long you want to talk. Maurice <laughs> Shema, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about this book, Let the Lord Sort Them. Um, and of course, you know, I'm an author who wrote this book and it came out and uh, I hope that anyone who's interested in this topic is, you know, interested in uh, going and purchasing a book. So you can do that on any of the kind of wherever you buy books. If you have a local bookstore, it's probably on a shelf there, or you can get them to order it. Uh, you can get it on bookshop.org, which supports small independent bookstores. Um, and there's an audio version. So if you just want to listen to it while you're jogging, uh, that is also an option. I always feel necessary to point out. Um, I also want to say that, uh, I write continually about the death penalty and other criminal justice topics for the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit uh, news outlet that focuses on those issues exclusively. Uh, I'm working on a, a big, long narrative piece um, that I can't really talk about right now, but it's uh, largely about confessions and why people confess to crimes and the problems when people confess to crimes that you know they maybe didn't commit. Uh, so that's what's coming down the pike for me. The last thing I just want to say about the death penalty is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of cases where you might hear the details of a crime and think, oh, my God, that person definitely deserves the death penalty. They deserve to be executed for what they did. There's no mitigating circumstances that affect that judgment of mine. Um, but often you're only getting kind of one narrative. You're getting the narrative from the police and the prosecutors of what happened. And usually as the years go by, defense lawyers go and they figure out why did this murder happen? Why did this person commit this murder? And they uh, often find that the explanation has to do with trauma, with mental health issues, um, with with issues that, that are not, I mean, it doesn't totally necessarily uh, take an individual person's fault out of it, but it definitely suggests that uh, the social environment around them played some role and and is somewhat to blame and those issues can be fixed. And so I honestly think that the kind of fight against the death penalty has done a service to our country beyond uh, the narrow context of the death penalty by showing us why do murders happen? Why do people commit murder? I mean, when you hear about a murder, you often think, who could do that? Why would that happen? And it's not until the defense lawyers go and really investigate it that uh, we kind of learn about why violence happens. And so um, that's the kind of work that I'm hoping to do more and more of. I've kind of been inspired by these defense lawyers to think about that as a way of approaching the criminal justice system. So it's not just, here's what we think happened. What does that person deserve? It's what produced this and what are the things that we can fix as a society so that there's less crime, so that there's less victims, so that there's less murder. Um, and that's the kind of work of the future. So uh, you can read the work that I try to do in that vein at themarshallproject.org, or you can go to my website, mauriceshamad.com. Um, and again, you know, if you feel like buying the book, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, but thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. So themarshallproject.org, mauriceshamad.com and uh, the let, let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, which was published in 2019. That is how y'all can find out more about Maurice Shema. Maurice, thanks again for coming on, man. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.
Well, folks, I told you that would be good. Maurice uh, is an incredible expert on the death penalty, and uh, I'm glad that he was able to join us. And I'm glad that you were able to join us. And I hope that you can join us tomorrow, which is Thursday when you're watching this. Uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m., I will be in Russell, Kentucky at 407 Ferry Street, and we will be helping save the Russell Convalescent Home. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to the Spike Cohen social media and find out what I'm talking about. The city of Russell, Kentucky government has been trying to use eminent domain to steal a convalescent home so that they can bulldoze it and build a parking lot. And we are going there to the Russell Convalescent Home right there on Ferry Street. And we are rallying to stop it at 4 p.m. Eastern. And then at 6.30 p.m., we are walking literally across this little two-lane street to where the city government building is. And we're going to speak at the city council meeting. And we hope that you join us. We are going to try to live stream it uh, on my social media. Um, but uh, if you're if you're anywhere near Russell, Kentucky, it's about an hour and a half from, um, which about about an hour and a half to two hours away from Cincinnati, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, and uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and about two and a half to three hours away from Louisville, Kentucky. So if you live nearby, we'd love to have you come out, show support for the people of Russell and for Russell Convalescent Home. Uh, we're going to fight to try to save this convalescent home. Uh, so come and join us. And then uh, Thursday night at 8 uh, is the writer's block where Matt Wright will be interviewing Randall Daniel, who is the chair of the Libertarian Party of Kentucky. I'm not, I think he might be there with us. So he may be uh, interviewing during the city council meeting. So we'll, we'll find out together. Uh, then on Friday, uh, you can join me in West Fargo, North Dakota, where I will be campaigning for uh, Travis Bull Johnson, who is running for Congress. Uh, you can join us if you go to Bull Johnson for MN07.com. Uh, then you can find out about all the events I'm going to be at on Friday and Saturday. We'd love to have you join us there across western Minnesota and parts of North Dakota. Come on out and meet us. And uh, on Friday at 9.30 Eastern, uh, uh, watch Noel and Nullick right here on Muddy Waters Media for Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloos. Uh, and then join us back here on Monday uh, at 8 for forget if it's seven or eight join us back here monday night for uh the mr america the bearded truth uh jason lyon his guest will be joe garcia who is the chair of the libertarian party of north carolina then join us next tuesday for the muddy waters of freedom where matt Wright and i parse through the week's events like the chipper little little snow monkeys that we are i don't know what a snow monkey is i hope it's not racist if that's racist we're not that's not we aren't that I've never, I just made that term up. So if that's a racist term, don't. Like the chipper little boys that we are. The chipper young men that we are. Then join me right back here next Wednesday. Same spike place, same spike time for another fantastic episode of My Fellow Americans. Will I be live? I believe so. But it was great having you here anyway. Thank you again. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.
my skin, my friend. In reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time with the blind lead the blind. Who am I to deny? I would cry when a loved one dies. I recognize that body outside with a hole in the body that was alive. Now we find with a chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news that night. It ain't even make it to the news that night. That's what We will make the